Well, good morning, Gospel Hope, and welcome back as we continue in our series, It's Complicated. Uh, this morning, we're going to be covering Second uh, Samuel chapters 1 through 10. So you're going to need two things for today's message. One, your jogging shoes, and of course, your Bible, uh, so that you can keep tracking with all the passages uh, that we're going to cover. Um, as we look at today's sections of scripture, these 10 chapters that really mark out this next season in David's life, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been to a junkyard? I don't, maybe where you're from, you call it a salvage yard. But I'm referring to that place where they pile cars that have been essentially rendered dysfunctional, undrivable, or in total disrepair. Every time I, get, I go to a junkyard, which is not frequent, it's not like I go there instead of to the park or to the mountains, but anytime I've gone to a junkyard, I'm always overrun by the same series of emotions. Number one, invariably, I see an automobile that intrigues me because it's either the same year, make, and model of something that I do drive or something that I have driven in the past. Another emotional moment that I always experience at a, a wrecking yard or at a salvage yard is to see a vehicle, yes, similar to one that I drive or maybe not, but this has a totally and completely destroyed structure. And I'm looking at that vehicle, and I'm trying to imagine and re-piece together in my mind what must have happened to produce this level of damage. Another thing that strikes me emotionally when I go to a junkyard is just seeing what looks like miles and miles and tons of tons of just completely and totally unused and destroyed metal parts and pieces. Don't know about you, but... When I look at that, sometimes it can be slightly overwhelming, and it makes me sometimes wonder if I still want to drive. That sounds weird, but, but really, especially when I see a vehicle that reminds me of my own, or, or I see a vehicle that is smushed or smashed in a such a way that, that obviously the accident was one where I say to myself, there is no way that the passengers or the driver of this vehicle could have survived. This is an incredibly catastrophic, mangled mess. That's what I say to myself, and it, 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 make, it makes me question whether or not I even want to get out there and stay out there on the roads. Well... When I was reading 2 Samuel verses or chapters 1 through 10, I'll be honest with you, I was visited by a same and a very similar kind of emotions. There is just a lot of relational carnage or a lot of relational wreckage that seems to follow the life of David. Every time I turn around, every chapter that I read and every page, there seems to be some kind of impending peril or doom or someone that is some savagery that is taking place. And it really does shake me. And what I hope happens to us is that if we are experiencing that kind of bumpy road anywhere and at any time in our lives, that the wreckage of relationship does not spook us or dissuade us from continuing to pursue reconciliation. That's the major topic that we want to cover today, is that, that relational wreckage should not be allowed to ruin our appetite for reconciliation. It can be kind of hard if you've gone through a tough season in life. Consider what we've already come from with David. Coming up from the days of being a shepherd boy in the pasture, uh, his various exploits and defeats and, and some of the celebrity that he received. But then to have all that celebrity be interrupted by the savagery that is acted out against him uh, uh, by Saul. 
And then when we watch some of the, the relationship breakdowns that happened here in 2 Samuel, you might be wondering, how can anyone still have a desire for reconciliation, have a desire to be around people? I feel like I would become a total and complete recluse. I want to go somewhere and hide if for any moment I had encountered the same kind of relational wreckage and carnage that David has. But I want you to keep your heads up that no matter how tough of a season that you're in right now or how tough of a season you've ever been through in your life, that the wreckage of relationships that go bad do not ruin your appetite for reconciliation. I believe that the Lord would always have our hearts to be attuned for and right for and ready for reconciliation. You've heard words already about David being a man after God's own heart. One of the signatures of David being a man after God's own heart is not that he is perfect, but that he is indeed persistent in the pursuit of God, in the pursuit of relationship, and in the pursuit of righteousness. And when we adopt that same kind of heart, we will be a people that regardless of the kind of relational wreckage we find ourselves encountering or being a part of or that we witness around us, whether it is political, whether it is personal, or whether it is connected to any of these protests, there's just lots of wreckage right now, people in all kinds of disagreement and relationships that are being wrinkled in ways that we had never imagined. Do not let any of that relational wreckage rob you of your appetite to pursue reconciliation. That is at least one of the signatures of what it means to be a person after God's own heart. We're going to learn some things today as we look at this high-level overview of these 10 chapters from 2 Samuel concerning David's life. And so let's open a few pages now, and if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to them, or turn with me in them to 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is how we open this section. It says, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziglag. And on the third day, behold, the man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And then the, the envoy who comes to deliver this bad news continues to tell them exactly how he knows that Saul and Jonathan are dead. Well, 2 Samuel opens with relational wreckage, relational carnage. But what we see here is that David is deeply grieved. The scriptures will later reveal that not only is David deeply grieved over the death of Jonathan, but he's also deeply grieved over the loss of the battle for Israel, and he's also deeply grieved over the loss of life for Saul. As a matter of fact, the young Amalekite who came to tell David that Saul and Jonathan were dead actually participated in the death of Saul, and it is David who avenges the death of Saul, the very man who has been chasing him and trying to extinguish his own life. This is quite an interesting piece of detail, and it's one of the first indications of David's having a heart that is after God's own heart in the way that he grieves and laments. One might ask the question, how could David, how could David uh, be a person that goes out and avenges Saul's death? 
which he did in this very chapter. How could David be one who writes, I mean, there are seven, from verses 17 to 23, and we should read this, and David lamented over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said, it should be taught and spoke in Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. Uh, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice and lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Your mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you or the fields of offerings. Uh, for there is a shield of the mighty, uh, the shield of the mighty was defiled, and the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. David continues as he writes out for the rest of the chapter an actual eulogy for Saul, an actual eulogy for Saul, a man who had been his assailant for all this time leading up to now. And so the great question is, how can David eulogize or speak well of a person who actually meant him so much ill will? Well, one of the indicators I believe the Lord Jesus Christ gives us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus would teach this concerning the heart of God. And if indeed David has a heart after God's, here's the sentiment that would have been resonating in David's heart that would have made it possible for him to eulogize or speak well of a man who had positioned himself as his enemy. And here it is. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, this is Jesus talking, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Jesus tells us that a heart that is properly oriented toward God and one that is oriented toward the gospel desires reconciliation until it is virtually impossible. Again, hear that again. A heart that is truly oriented toward the gospel is one that lunges for and desires reconciliation until it is absolutely impossible. And one of the first points or ideas I want you to know about this unique relationship between Saul and David here as it commences in this 2 Samuel chapter 1 is this. Sometimes reconciliation feels unlikely or impossible, but it is the pursuit of it is always godly. Sometimes reconciliation seems highly unlikely, but the pursuit of it is always right and godly. Let's not forget that. Some of you in your relationships right now may not have the opportunity for future reconciliation. Perhaps the person with whom you've got the worst relationship has died, like Saul has. Perhaps a relationship, uh, uh, the person with whom you have uh, a great disrepair of relationship is at a great distance from you. They are disconnected. You don't know where they are. You can't find them. You haven't spoken in years. But let me tell you this. Regardless of how, how unlikely actual full restoration and reconciliation is, a heart that is oriented toward God and is oriented around the gospel and it is oriented toward reconciliation will, will not cease to pursue some kind of reconciliation. And David is doing it here even posthumously in the way that he eulogizes Saul. This isn't just a courtesy speech like we hear sometimes in Western funerals where we, a person stands up and regardless of how scandalously they might live, everybody in the room tries to make them look like a Boy Scout. But this is David whose heart is kind toward the Lord and he respects the anointed one who is Saul. And because he loves and respects the Lord, he is able to 
despite the character flaws and some of the disconnected things uh, uh, that, and the warped things that Saul was able to do, he is able to still weep for his departure. That's a powerful sentiment. If we are to be people who have a heart that is toward God and to be a people after God's own heart, we must place a high premium on reconciliation even when it seems like the ultimate outcome of reconciliation is unlikely due to death, due to distance, or to due to some other damaging aspects of that relationship. This is what it means to have a heart toward God, is to pursue reconciliation until it is virtually impossible. Now, does this mean that we should willingly enter back into uh, relationships that jeopardize our life and safety and our well-being? No. If you listen clearly to last week's message, that is obviously not what we're calling for. But notice that David's heart, there is an attitude. There is an attitude of reconciliation because he is able to speak well of Saul. He is able to see the, 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 the hand of God on Saul's life even in the way that he died. And I believe that we too can help ourselves a great deal to not die bitter by adopting the same kind of heart that longs for reconciliation. Because when we adopt a heart toward reconciliation, when the person that we, are, we have a damaged relationship with uh, goes away and we are no longer to make contact with them, we're not able to go to, their, to, to them personally and say, I'm sorry or I wish this hadn't happened. If our hearts are oriented toward reconciliation, we don't live looking in the rearview mirror with bitterness and regret that we didn't say certain things. If our hearts, while they are alive, are aiming toward reconciliation. Again, reconciliation sometimes is unlikely, but the pursuit of it is always godly. And I believe that David demonstrates that for us greatly. I want to take a look at also another unique relationship sequence, and that is... After Jonathan and Saul had died on the battlefield and David learned of it, there is a succession plan that should be in place. That is, David has already been anointed to be king over all of Israel, but unfortunately, because of the schism and relationship, what has happened now is that David and Saul have essentially been living as though they are two separate camps or two separate houses. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 2, we, are, we, we get this visibility into this little relationship where one of uh, Jonathan's uh, sons, uh, or one of Saul's sons, a man by the name of Ishbosheth, is actually installed as the king over Israel, while David is now operating as a king over Judah. So you've got these two separate kings that are operating the same place or, or attempting to lead in, in a very fractured way. This was never God's plan. And so, and because it's never God's plan, we can, we, we, let's look at the scriptures and how this is described for us in just a moment. It's uh, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, And after David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up and into the cities of Judah? So this is followed, following the obvious death of, of Jonathan and David. Shall I go up into the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up, David. To which uh, shall I go up? And the Lord said to him, Go to Hebron. And so David went up there uh, with his two wives also, uh, <clears throat> Ahimnoam and Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, uh, of Carmel. And David went up with his men who were with him, uh, and everyone to his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came there, and they anointed David as king over the house of Judah. And when, Dave, when they told David it was the men of Japheth Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to Japheth Gilead and said to them, 
May you be blessed by the Lord because you show loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. So here it is, posthumously, David still has a heart that leans towards showing honor to Saul. Man, this is a heart that really leans toward reconciliation. Regardless of how much wreckage there is in a relationship, David doesn't lose heart for reconciliation, and I believe that this is a, a firm reminder for us as well. But there's something else that I want you to see because there's not only this disconnect in the text between the Saul between Saul and David, but there's also now this political disconnect that exists between Israel and Judah. You've got two different kings, Isbosheth, right, one of the descendants or the son of, of, of Saul, and then you've got David, the rightful king. Well, there, is, uh, there are two other men in this story, Abner, who is the captain of the armies or heads of the armies over in Israel under Isbosheth, and then you've got Joab, who's also over the armies of David. Now, before you get caught up in all of the ancient Near Eastern Hebrew names and starting your head start spinning, I want you to see something in particular, and this is this is that in order to get Israel and Judah rectified under one king, there's going to be some more killing. There's going to be some more carnage. Unfortunately, Abner and Joab end up leading groups, and there's these constant skirmishes between the household of David, as the scriptures would put it, and the household of also uh, of Saul that is being stood up by Ishbosheth in this season. But what's important to note about these people in these places and these skirmishes is that this lack of reconciliation between the tribes of Israel is actually indicative of some of the lack of reconciliation that we might experience in our own lives. You see, sometimes the pursuit of reconciliation is costly, but the pursuit is still worthy. Sometimes reconciliation is very costly, but the pursuit of that reconciliation is very costly. Abner, who is the head of the armies under Isbosheth and now, you know, leading and trying to carry out the legacy of Saul, finally reaches a place where he says enough is enough. He's tired of the Israelite casualties. He's tired of, of all the things that are happening, and he begins to have a shift in his loyalty. He says to Isbosheth one day, uh, as they are having a conversation, I believe and I know that it was God's original promise that David should be leading both Israel and Judah and not the kingdom broken up in this way. And so Abner goes to David and begins to operate to, 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 to for not negoti negotiate, but to make covenant with him. This is a beautiful thing to see because Abner was Saul's cousin. What would, why would Saul's cousin operate in this great humility toward David and change his loyalties away from the household of Saul? Well, I believe that that is a crucial step in having a heart that is oriented toward reconciliation. And that is, uh, 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 we must be able to look beyond our own interests and look at the broader picture of what is God's ultimate will. The Bible tells us that in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, that it was Abner who said, God do so to Abner and more, more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord swore to him to transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and set up a throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba and Ishbosheth, which is the king in, in uh, right now, the temporary king, uh, did not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Again, I don't want you to get caught up in all the names of the stories, but what I do want you to see is that there's kind of this surrogate or substitute or interim king that has been set up uh, after Saul. This scenario of having these conflicting kings or kingdoms at conflict inside the same nation is really the source of a lack of reconciliation in a lot of us. 
shifting the camera lens off of the text into our own lives, I want you to consider for just a moment what's happening with Abner as he decides to humbly go to David and shift his loyalties from the other king over to God's true king. I want your ears to hear Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, when he says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and he'll love the other, or he will be devoted to one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You could insert anything in there. You cannot serve God in self. You cannot serve God and anything else. You can't have two masters. Israel in this moment is literally an illustration of why we have many broken relationships, and that is because we have sitting on the throne of our hearts the Christ as king, who is God's rightful king that has been set up in our lives, and something else that we're trying to prop up, like an chef or fill in the blank. Maybe there's something else that you've allowed to stay over from the old regime before you were saved. There's something you're not yet ready to let go of, and it's still serving as king in your life, or trying to be a co-monarch in your life, calling the shots. And that lack of unity within your own self is showing up in the way we pursue reconciliation in some of our external relationships. Or I'll put it this way, we won't experience external, the, 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 the peace of God in our external relationships until we address the discontent within our internal relationship. Abner was able to change loyalties over to David and not this other substitute king. Abner was able to change loyalties and operate in humility because he saw the will of God ultimately, that God promised that David should be the one true king. Inside of every one of us, there's also a call, an appeal to humility. Regardless of how this other regime, this other leadership, this other ideology that has been calling shots in your life, regardless of how well you think it may have been working for you in the past, if God has called another king to sit on the throne of your heart, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to slay that other king. You need to abdicate that other king. You need to put everything under the Lord Jesus Christ because until there is one king running your life, you will find it very difficult to have reconciliation in some of the external relationships in your life as well. I want you to also consider for just a moment not only this conversation between uh, uh, Saul and Abner or Abner and Isbosheth, uh, and in the words of Jesus, as he tells us that we can't serve two masters. But I want you to understand this, that there is another challenge emerging within Israel. Immediately after Abner went to appeal to David, Abner was unfortunately killed. Uh, and uh, he was killed by the men of Joab. Uh, and after that, more relationship carnage unfolds. David weeps and mourns even the death of this man. After that, the, uh, uh, now that, that David is moving to a place of singular leadership over both, the, uh, of both Israel and Judah, we then see David moving to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David or into Jerusalem where he is. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. It says in uh, verses 5 through 11, So all the elders of Israel came uh, to the king at Hebron, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, chapter 6, verse 5, and it says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrated before the Lord, and the songs and the lairs and the harps and the tambourines and the, and the uh, castanets and the cymbals, and they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, and Uzzah put his hand out um, um, to the ark of God and took hold of it, and the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and, the, and God struck him there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. 
and David was angry. More carnage, right? And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and the places called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord this day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside and put it to them, the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, what's interesting is that Uzzah obviously didn't, it wasn't just a failure to follow the rules, but there was a principle put in place in Israel that you are not supposed to reach out and touch the ark. Um, and he lost his life because of this. Now, this seems like a harsh passage. But I believe what you're seeing here is you, as, as David tries to reconcile the presence of the ark with Jerusalem and bring it into the city of David, you're seeing this, that sometimes reconciliation can be risky, but it is always and still necessary to pursue. What do I mean? When you see the ark, you're seeing a portrait of God's presence. And in this portrait of God's presence, recognize two things about the ark. It is equally intense in both uh, holiness as well as loving kindness. You may say, well, how so? Well, the same ark that when Uzzah reached up and touched it, the Lord broke out against him in anger. When it rested in the home of the Hezrite, when it rested in the home of another Levite, his whole home was blessed. When David finally got over his fears about bringing the ark to him and has it to sit in his place, he was blessed and the Lord was pleased with him. The ark offers us this unique duality. They are not in conflict with each other because it shows us this illustration of how God is both severe and sincere, but equally so. Isn't it interesting how the ark, which is this uh, image or this icon that is representative of the presence of the Lord, had this very powerful and dynamic presence in Israel and only certain people could approach it. But today in the New Testament, the Bible tells us this. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here's the verse that I really want to capitalize on here. Look at this in verse 16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. This passage here in Hebrews is pointed at a people whose history would have been intimately familiar with how Uzzah died. And that is only certain people were able to participate in the, the, the righteous rituals. Only certain people were able to go into the holiest of holies. But it is Jesus Christ as the high priest who has gone into the holiest of holies. And now we can also come in without fear, but with confidence. But we should still move just like David did with a reverential fear for the presence of God. A reverential fear for the presence of God. But, but what's interesting about David and his reverential fear with the presence of God is that I think he fails to recognize how he is very much like this. What do I mean by he's like this? Equally intense defender of the righteousness of God, but also equally intense in his outreach to others. Consider for just a moment, David would quickly show wrath and slay anyone who reached out to touch the Lord's anointed. David was very quick to slay anyone who would reach out their hand and do damage to Israel. David was very quickly to slay anyone who had operated in unrighteousness and done things that he felt was an affront to the almighty God of Israel. But with the same intensity that David would protect the name and holiness of God, he would also move toward others with great loving kindness. 
uh, God and his relationship with us also allows us to see his loving kindness is just as intense as his own righteousness. When we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, David makes, or the Lord makes a promise to David that he will build a house for him, that David, uh, David wants to build a house for the Lord, but, but God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. And in building that house, there's going to be a kind of relationship between us like father and son where I'm going to bless you more than you've ever been blessed, but I'm also going to chastise you like a great son. Equally intense in both blessings and in loving kindness. A great defender of his holiness, but also equally intense in showing his loving kindness. The Lord does not cease in either direction. Real reconciliation doesn't demand that God lower his standards, but he lets us in to see the intensity of his love also. This, uh, this is a, a, a great thing that we see illustrated in, in, in just kind of this emblem of the ark, but it's also emblematic of what we see in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ takes on God's wrath for us. The Lord does not lower the standards of his holiness to let us into relationship. The standards are equally as high. The risks are just as high, but he is also equally intense in the loving kindness and the grace that he shows through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just in case you were wondering, where exactly does David show this intense sense of loving kindness for others? And I think it is illustrated in the story of Mephibosheth. Now, in chapter 9 and in an earlier chapter, I believe it's 4, Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, so he is the grandson of Saul. Mephibosheth is a young man who, when he was a baby, the nurse, he was sitting with a nurse midwife, and when she heard that Saul and David had been killed, or Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle, she got up and was running, and she fell, and young Mephibosheth became crippled in both of his feet. And Mephibosheth is now... Uh, just living apart from or not in any type of uh, a palace or anything like that. And David goes and says these words over in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness, that I may uh, show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Uh, now, there is a um, servant in the house of Saul whose name uh, was Ziba. And they called to David and the king and said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show great kindness to? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And so David called for this uh, young man, and his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth comes before David. Again, he is the grandson of Saul. And David, in his might and in his kingdom, He's all set up. He's got peace with his enemies. He's still looking for a way to honor his commitment to the house of Saul and also to his friend, his covenant friend, Jonathan. He invites Mephibosheth to come and to sit at the table with him, the table of kings. Uh, the Bible expresses it this way in uh, verses 5 through 17. Uh, here it is. Uh, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell down at his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. Um, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, and I will restore the land of your father. I will give you servants. And he also set him up to where he could sit at the table of David, sit at the table of the king. I want you to see in Mephibosheth a great act of reconciliation that should be at work within all of us. 
You see, for Mephibosheth to sit at the table, you need to understand several things. Number one, he brought nothing to the table that qualified him to sit there. He was the grandson of a man who had tried to kill David. But David is intense in showing him loving kindness. Mephibosheth, due to no fault of his own, was in the arms of someone who fell. And as a result of that fall, his feet were negatively impacted. I hope you can hear yourself in this. We have, we share in some of Mephibosheth's resume, if you will. Again, someone else holding us fell. Mephibosheth's feet were made crippled. He could not walk upright before the king. He couldn't bring himself to the king. He had no economic resources, no way to, to feed himself. He could not farm, nor could he be in the military. He brought nothing to the table of good report. He couldn't be one of David's great men of value. Uh, he, could, he had nothing to bring to the table. And here it is, Mephibosheth, unable to walk upright, unable to walk on his own in any way, gets this gracious invite from David to come and sit at the king's table, the king of all Israel. So again, physically unable. Uh, economically unable, relationally unable. There is nothing that Mephibosheth could lean into. He couldn't say, David, you owe me this based on my past relationship with Saul because God had already passed his anointing or his signature of who should be king onto the house of David. Mephibosheth had no right at the king's table other than the fact that he was graciously granted the opportunity to come. Here it is once again, David who a man is responsible for and has seen a lot of relational wreckage throughout his time. But he still is equally committed to not only being an ardent defender of God's righteousness, but also an ardent demonstrator of loving kindness. This is also illustrated by us, uh, in a, to, for us in a passage in the New Testament that says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28-29, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is an exact illustration of Mephibosheth. It's an exact uh, illustration of us bringing nothing to the table, no reason for the king to invite us in other than his own grace and loving kindness. Well, God, in his pursuit of us, does so in no way that is contingent on anything that we bring to the table. The question that I ask us when it comes to the complicated network of relationships that we see David working through and all of these acts of reconciliation to reconcile the, the legacy of, uh, of Saul, to reconcile the kingdom, Israel and Judah, to now reconcile the household of Saul and David, even through this uh, remaining um, uh, member of the household in Mephibosheth. There's no contingencies that David sets up. He doesn't make Mephibosheth bring anything to say you qualify for this. In much the same way, God moves toward us. We were the cripple, the one who was unable to bring our own selves to the table, nothing to bear and nothing to bring. But God still sought us out for reconciliation. The question that I ask is, in our pursuit of reconciliation with others, have we set up contingencies? Have we set up additional criteria that they have to meet? Are we forcing others to bring something to the table? Or are we moving like David, a man after God's own heart, with an open hand to be equally intense in showing love and kindness as we are in noting people's weaknesses? When people offend us in this life, when people offend us, when people do things against us that, 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 that set us off, with the same intensity that we can remember and recall those things, do we also move toward them with love and kindness? This is the heart of God. 
The Lord knows all of our sins, but he still, with equal intensity that he maintains his holiness, moves toward us with great loving kindness. We see David illustrating just a wee bit of that, and uh, therefore the scriptures refer to him as a man after God's own heart. God makes a commitment to David, not because he's qualified, but because God is graciously going to justify him as a king who will sit on a throne and he will establish his kingdom forever, and that kingdom will actually be typified uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who does indeed, uh, like a gracious um, savior, a gracious king, model for us the intense holiness of God, but at the same time, the intense loving kindness of God. Uh, it's complicated, ladies and gentlemen, but we cannot allow the wreckage of past relationships to remove our heart and our appetite for reconciliation. It is the heart of God that regardless of how hard life is that we consider and can, we continue to pursue reconciliation with others and those around us. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your great grace and mercy in giving us uh, your word, walking us through these principles of reconciliation as modeled through your servant David. We beg, O oh God, that you would um, enliven us to not be a people who grow weary and well-doing uh, when it comes to the pursuit and the desire for reconciliation with others around us. There is so much division around us. We pray, O oh God, that we would be brokers of reconciliation through the gospel and through the loving kindness shown to us by you through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.